Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning, Candeo family. It's a gift, as always, to be with you. If you've got a Bible, I would love for you to join me in Daniel chapter 9. And I've heard it said, likely you've heard the same thing, that who you are in secret is who you are, right? Which means you can put on a public face and you can go out and exhaust every ounce of energy that you have trying to tell the world, this is who I really am, really. But who you are in secret is who you are. And if that's true, which I believe it is, then Daniel once again proves that he is someone special. And it's not just my opinion, that's God's. Uh, Look forward with me to Daniel 9, verse 23, at how Daniel is described. It says in verse 23, at the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by God. Or some translations say, deeply loved. If today, if at all you are are curious at any level of what the secret life of a person who is deeply loved by God looks like, it's right here in chapter 9. There's 27 verses in Daniel chapter 9, and it's easy for us, especially as we're going through the prophetic portion of Daniel, to get fixated on the four verses that speak of prophecy and totally miss and jump over the 23 verses that showcase the incredible intimacy of God with his servant Daniel and how Daniel delights in God through Bible study and prayer. The great gift of Daniel chapter 9 is we will see and unpack today one of the most incredible prayers in all of our Bible. Today, Daniel's going to teach us how to pray. And as we will see, as Daniel prays, God is not silent, but he will speak words of warning and promise to Daniel that are as important for us to hear as it was for Daniel to hear. And so if you're eager with me, let's, let's dive in to Daniel chapter 9 and see all of these things. Verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Just want to pause a bit and take you back just a week. You were here last week. We opened up Daniel chapter 8. That's what we've been doing. We've just been going kind of through this one chapter at a time. But in Daniel chapter 8, what we saw is Daniel had a vision, another vision, And this time in his vision, he saw rams and goats and horns and all of these things representing the the rise and fall of kingdoms that were to come. And in it, he would see just the troubles that he and his fellow people, the Jewish people, would have in the midst of it all. And we saw that even though God had promised him, hey, in the midst of all of this, I'm sovereign in control and I win, knowing all of that, Daniel is so overcome 
But what he saw, he's so overwhelmed by it all that he lays in bed for days, unable to get out. Then eventually steps out of bed, still distressed, still overwhelmed, and goes about life. I say all of that because I want you to understand, guys, when we pick up today in chapter nine, it's 11 years later. And I think sometimes we can miss the the element of time as we're reading scripture, because for us, it just flows one thing to the next. And in a world where we like demand instant everything, you know, living with something like this, like a tension in your gut for over a decade, could you imagine? But it's worth noting that Daniel lived faithfully for over a decade with this tension in his gut. But now there's a growing confidence and you can almost miss it and miss the significance of verse one because the things that Daniel had seen in previous visions, the dominoes that had been laid out are beginning to fall, namely that the Babylonians have been now recently replaced by the Medes and the Persians. He's seen that. He's seen what God promised play out in front of him. And so there's a growing confidence within him. And now as he sees what's going on around him, it combines with what he's reading as he opens the scriptures. And what he was reading was in Jeremiah. If you want to read what he was reading, I'll put it on the screen for you. This is what he saw in Jeremiah. This is chapter 25. I will eliminate the sound of joy and gladness from them, the voice of the groom and the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And the whole land will become a desolate ruin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And when the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. This is the Lord's declaration, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, and I will make it a ruin forever. And as he continues reading, he gets down to Jeremiah 29, and he reads this. As God continues this promise, he says, for this, this is what the Lord says, that when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, and to give you a future and a hope. Maybe you've heard those verses before and didn't realize until now what those promises are specifically addressed to. Verse 12, you will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. See, Daniel, this whole time, he knew why he and his people were in captivity. God had warned them time and time again through Moses as he led them out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land saying, hey, if you rebel against God, if you disobey him, he will send you back into captivity. All this time, Daniel has known why they are in captivity, but now he understands that it won't last forever. He's reading Jeremiah. He looks at the hourglass. He sees that the time is almost up and he erupts in prayer. And already, I said that Daniel will teach us how to pray today. Already Daniel is teaching us how to pray. 
Okay, if you're taking notes, here's note number one on how to pray and what Daniel teaches us. See, when it comes to prayer, the first problem for many of us is that we don't pray. Okay, I'm gonna let you deal with that one. But the second problem that we have is that when we pray, when we actually pray, we don't know what to pray. Christian, hear this. Number one, when you don't know what to pray, pray the promises of God. When you don't know what to pray, pray the promises of God. Daniel is providing for us this great model of how prayer and scripture should interact in our lives. All right, far too often, we're really good at reading our Bibles and that Bible reading plan and checking the box and then setting our Bibles down and just going about our day. Or for us, you know, like, we'll read our Bible over coffee and we'll pray before our meals, but never together. Guys, Scripture was meant to be a springboard for prayer. Here's what I mean. If you're reading Luke 7, okay, say you're in Luke 7 this week and you get to that beautiful encounter when Jesus walks into the city of Nain and comes face to face with a funeral processional. Have you ever heard that story? Seen that story? But he comes face to face with a funeral processional of a widow who has now just lost her only son. It's a beautiful, simple story because all it says is that as Jesus comes face to face with this funeral, he had compassion on her and he slows everything down. He touches the young man in the open coffin and he says, young man, get up. And he comes to life. And what always gets me is just that simple phrase. It says he had compassion on her. So what this looks like in our lives, we should at that moment stop and let that scripture be a springboard into prayer and just pray simple prayers. Just go, God, thank you that you are a compassionate God. Or if later this week you're in 1 Corinthians 10 and you get to verse 13, where God promises that when we are tempted, he will be faithful to us and not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. That you would at that moment grab onto that scripture and springboard into prayer and say, God, I feel the constant tug of sin, the constant pull of temptation. Would you be faithful as you promise? Be near to me, strengthen me, and help me to continue to say no to the things of this world and yes to you. That what we would do is we would read and pray and read and pray and read and pray. That's what Daniel is modeling for us, how these things go together. So let's go back to Daniel 9. As I said, Daniel knew why they were in captivity. Now he knows that it won't last forever, and he grabs on to the promises of God. And just like Jeremiah 29 encouraged, he springboards into prayer, and he says this in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Did you notice that? Did you notice he doesn't just launch into God do this, which is what we often do. This is the second thing that Daniel teaches us to pray. Because there's an appropriate awareness as Daniel hits his knees of whose turf he's on. 
knows who God is. And he's not minimizing his holiness, he's celebrating it. That's where he starts his prayer, by celebrating God's holiness. Holy just means he's different than us. He sees him as he is, and he acknowledges that first. Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. He celebrates God first. Then watch what he does. In contrast, then, he says in verse 5, We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our leaders, kings, ancestors, and all the people of the land. There's not only an appropriate awareness of who God is as he prays, he also knows who he is. He knows himself and his people, and he doesn't downplay his sinfulness. As so when we come before God, we don't hide our sin. We can't. We confess it. Confession. This is what marks the church and makes us different from every other gathering in the world. Right? What makes the church different than every other gathering on planet Earth is not that we're any less wicked than the people outside of this place. That's not it. Not in the eyes of God. What makes us different than the PTO at the school or your business club at the university or the neighborhood committee that you're on, what makes it a church different than that is that we confess our sin when we gather and they don't. Imagine that if you went to the next PTO and that was happening. People taking stock of their lives and just laying it all on the table going, these are all the ways that I've failed and sinned against God. Guys, confessing is what we do. We confess our sins to God that we can be washed by the blood of Jesus. And this isn't just a one-time thing, but we do this again and again and again. And not only do we confess our sins to God, we confess our sins to one another, as James 5 tells us, so that we can be healed. But there's something about confessing that sin to one another, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that brings about a, a further healing. And you know, we're not a perfect people. We are a confessing and washed by the blood of Jesus people. That's what makes us a church. And so I just ask you, when was the last time you took stock of your life and confessed your sin before God and others? When's the last time you did that? And if you can't think of anything right now, that's likely because you either don't know God or you don't know yourself or both. But Daniel, when he hit his knees in prayer, he's teaching us to pray. He is fully aware of the gap that exists between God and himself. And he doesn't minimize God's holiness. He doesn't downplay his sinfulness. He puts it all out there and he recognizes the gap between those two things and it rightly shapes his prayer. And watch how this just continues to play out. You'll see him just contrasting God's holiness and his sinfulness and this gap between these two things. And he's not just praying for himself. He's praying for all the people around him. He says in verse seven, Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us. 
the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far and all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty that they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our rulers, our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. Contrast again, compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instructions that were gracious to us, right? That he set before us clearly through his servants and prophets. You can see this gap continued to widen. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse of the law of Moses, right? This, this clear warning that you gave us, the servant of God who has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has carried out his words. God is faithful to carry out his words, even his punishments that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like it has been done to Jerusalem, has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord God kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous. I would highlight even in his judgments, even in sending disaster to them, he is righteous. He is full of right in doing that. We have not obeyed him. Time and time again, in Daniel's prayer, he highlights the gap between God and people between a God who is faithful and has proven himself faithful time and time again. If you want just a summary of the entire Old Testament, what we see in the Old Testament is God proved himself faithful time and time again. He is a faithful God to an unfaithful people who have proven themselves unfaithful time and time again. It's like being married to an adulterous spouse. But being faithful time and time again. Can we just pause for a moment and marvel at the patience of God on sinners? And I'm not just talking about them. Seeing all of this on display, I am as shocked as Daniel is that we're still even on speaking terms. And as awesome as this prayer is, it only gets better, all right? Verse 15, now the Lord our God who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is today, we have sinned and we've acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquity of our ancestors, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, 
but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. I think sadly, if we could just reflect for a moment on the reality of our prayer life, is that really the only times most of us ever pray is just when we need something, right? We're waiting to hear back about a job interview and we want it, we want it so bad. God, would you give this to me? We've just left the doctor's office and we're waiting to hear the results of this diagnosis. God, would you be gracious to me? Would you make it a positive thing? Would you keep me clear of cancer or whatever it is, right? Like, like when we pray, it's often only motivated or driven by the fact that we want something. And if we're honest, most times when we pray, the tone that we have is directly to the just do this. And sadly, if we're further honest, when we pray, there's always this element of like future faith that kind of hangs in the balance depending on what God does with this prayer. Like, if I pray this and God responds in the way that I want him to and does what I ask, that will build my confidence. I'll be like, God, here's my prayer. He's good. He's proven himself faithful. Or on the other side, if I pray for something and God doesn't give me what I ask, that that might cause me in the future to go, I, I don't know. I don't know if God hears me. I don't know if he's good or all-powerful. As notice here, when Daniel prays, there is not a hint of, I deserve this, or God, you owe me. Right? Daniel is fully aware that if he gets what he deserves, if his people gets what he deserves, they have no hope of future better days. This is not at all a prayer of like asking for what he deserves. He knows that. Do we? And for Daniel, as he prays, he's praying to God saying, there is nothing else for you to prove. He knows history well enough. He knows who the faithful one is. He knows who the all-powerful one is. He knows who the gracious one is and the righteous one is. He knows all that, and so do we. God doesn't need to prove himself any further. Because when we pray, guys, we know this. When we pray, we know that God hears us, not because of our goodness, but because of his grace. And we know that when we pray, we can be confident that he is powerful and loving, that there's nothing left for him to prove because we can look back on nail-pierced hands and feet and a bloodstained cross. We know that. It's already proven. And that gives us confidence. If you want to see the gospel in Daniel 9, it's right there in verse 18. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Understand this, that just in the same way that you and I are not saved, are not brought into relationship with God and have eternal hope because of anything good that we have done, but only based on God's abundant compassion provided for us through Jesus Christ, just like that's true for our salvation, the same is true when we pray that God doesn't hear us and respond and move because we deserve it, because we're so good. He does it 
as an overflow of his just abundant compassion, a display of his sovereign joy from a person who has nothing else to prove at this point to let you know that he loves you, cares about you. That should shape the way that we pray. Guys, we should be overwhelmed this morning at just the thought of prayer itself. I mean, doesn't this blow your mind that like right now, and you don't have to hit your knees, you don't have to close your eyes, you don't have to put your hands together, like right now, you could say it out loud, you could say it quietly, you could stand up and lift your hands, you could do a lot of different things and call it prayer, but you could right now stop and just have a conversation with God. You, a sinner, can have a conversation with the creator of the universe who is holy and righteous in all things. You can have that. Our salvation is a gift of grace. So too is prayer. And Daniel knew that. Church, God wants us to pray. He wants us to cry out to him. And there's been this just simple tool that Daniel has like modeled for us here that has been so helpful for me. I, I picked this up when I was a teenager, not forgotten it. It's kind of childish, but it has helped me pray and pray with all the things that Daniel 9 has taught us so far in mind. And it just follows this simple acrostic of the word acts. If you've heard this before, don't spoil it for your neighbor. Just play along with me. But if not, maybe this will be revolutionary for you because it's 20 years now since I learned this and it still affects my daily prayer habit. But when we pray, I think it's right for us to start first with a posture where we keep A in mind, the adoration. And we start first by saying, God, you are high and holy, awe-inspiring in all that you are, you are sovereign and good. And from there, we move into C, confession. I recognize, God, in comparison to you, uh, I'm not those things. God, this week, I've battled a restlessness in my soul that has been driven primarily by just a desire to please people rather than you. Would you forgive me? I move on to T, thanksgiving. God, thank you for your finished work of Jesus on the cross that I could stand before you, I can confess my sin, and you wash me clean once again. That I can stand before you today and you delight in me as a son. That blows my mind. And then I move into S, supplication. What am I asking God? What am I putting before him? God, I'm praying for this week just a peace in my heart, a confidence, a courage in my life to do what is right. So I'll let you take that tool and take it into your connection groups this week and try that out. I want to bring this back to the moment that Daniel is in because he's, he's praying to God and he's saying, God, you, you promised, you promised that you were going to bring restoration to your people and to your city and so he's grabbing onto that promise and he's pleading, would you act in accordance with that promise? Not because we deserve it, but in your abundant compassion and for your namesake. The nations have been watching here, God. They watched you deliver a sinful people out of slavery and bring them into this land and watch them rebel against you. And, and then you sent them back into captivity. They've watched all of that. And now would you just 
For your own namesake, would you do what you've promised so they would see once again your power and mercy on full display? He's, he's laying that all before God. And before he can even say amen, God provides an answer. Look at this. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in, ex in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering, and he gave me this explanation. Daniel, I have come now to give you understanding. And at the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this, that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. And after those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. And the people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come with a flood. And until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on the wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. And that's God's response to his prayer. I'm going to move from looking at Daniel's prayer life to now focusing on God's response, this, this word of prophecy. And I'm just going to say this right now. Um, a lot of ink has been spilled over what these verses mean by people a lot smarter than me. Okay, so... Uh, I'm just going to say this right away. There's a lot of questions when we look at these four verses. Like, is this timeline literal or symbolic? Are these like exact years with precise dating? Or is it just referring to like a, like a medium-sized chunk of time, a larger chunk of time, or like a really small chunk of time? Like, what are we getting at here? Uh, are these three sets of time, are they like linked together or is there a gap between them? Uh, I've also just read articles and watched people debate over whether all of these events have been fulfilled, some of them or none of them, you know? So it's just, it's all across the board. I'm saying this right now, I got four minutes and 33 seconds. What I'm about to present now for the remaining part of our time is where I lean on these things. And I'm gonna reserve the right this morning to change my mind by noon today, um, maybe tomorrow, sometime later next week, okay? I'll also say this as a caveat. Uh, we as an elder team debated on this, and we also are kind of all over the board. So you can corner any one of us and ask our opinions and thoughts. I've been given permission to say, like with all of those like caveats, this is where I kind of lean, okay? So if you want me to get corrected later, just ask Jake what he would have taught if he was teaching today, and he'll be fine. <laughs> all right, so here's what, what seems to be abundantly clear. I'm going to start there. Here's like what's abundantly clear. Daniel has prayed, this is God's response, and God wants to be clear to Daniel. This is what you're praying, this is what you wanna know, I'm telling you, that will happen. 
You want to see your people and yourself restored. You, you want to see restoration come into the world and for me to bring that. It's going to happen. I, it's going to look different than what you thought and what you may think. The first thing he says to Daniel, though, right there in verse 24, it's that first line. He's, he's letting him know, Daniel, you are living within a divine and unshakable timetable. There's this sovereign story that has already been written that you are living within that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And Daniel is between the beginning and the end. So are we. And what he says there in verse 24, that's kind of like the big picture view. Like, this is what I promise will happen within this divine timetable. That between where you're at, Daniel, and the end, these things will happen. I promise that these six things will take place between now and the end. That rebellion will stop. Sin will stop. Sins will be atoned for. Righteousness will reign. There'll be no more visions or prophecy, and the most holy place will be anointed. That's his promise. All of those things will happen by the time we reach the end. I think verses 25 through 27 highlight for us like three stages and how this plays out. The way that I read it is I read kind of stages one and two seem to be linked together, these seven weeks and these 62 weeks. Um, some of your Bibles maybe say like seven, seven, 62 sevens, like here already begins one of the debates. Uh, like what is that referring to? Uh, I actually see most scholars believing that that refers to seven sets of seven years or 62 sevens or 62 sets of seven years. Like, it's like weeks of years. So we're talking about seven sets of seven years. How many years would that be? Seven times seven, 49, right? We take seven times 62, it gets a little bit more complicated. But all told, he's talking about 70 weeks, 70 weeks of sevens, 490 years. This is where I lean, okay? Those first two seemingly linked together, the seven sevens and the 62 sevens is 483 years. From the issuing of the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, which I would point to Ezra seven, when the decree of Artaxerxes goes out in 458 BC, you move from that point 483 years, you hit AD 26, when Jesus begins his public ministry. Coincidence? I don't think so. I've not been able to shake that one, you know? But just as God promised, between the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which began at that point, through Jesus, eventually we know how this works, right? Jesus steps onto the scene, the anointed one, Jesus is cut off. And not too long after Jesus is crucified, a ruler comes in from Rome, sacks the entire city of Jerusalem, and destroys the temple, 70 AD. Stages one and two played out. It's widely accepted, and I, I lean this way, that the experiences of what happened in AD 70 and the desolations that took place there served as a type that point forward to a future day. I read a gap between verses 26 and 27, there's a gap between stages one and two and this final set of seven, this, this week that'll play out where one will emerge who will be way worse and way more awful than anything that's come before him. Titus himself in 70 AD 
and will himself establish himself as this ruler, this all-powerful one who will oppress those of faith and bring about a bunch of hardships. I, I go that way because 1 John 2, Revelation 13, speak of one who is to come, who is the Antichrist, who will do that. This Antichrist will come, he will oppose God's people. His coming is, and I repeat these words, predetermined, on target, and certain. His coming is predetermined, on target, and certain. I will also repeat this, so too is his destruction. Look at the promise at the end of verse 27. Until the decreed, that's the key word that this whole thing started with in verse 24. All this is, is already written. This is, this is planned. Until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. All right, if I've lost you, come back to me. I'm going to end really simply with this. As we share way more in common with Daniel than we would realize. There's no accidents in Daniel's life. He sits within this divine, unshakable storyline, this, this divine timetable where there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Same is true for us. Everything that Daniel had experienced and everything that his people will experience, everything that we experience is already part of this sovereign hand of God, this God that is orchestrating all things in history to every detail that he desires. So no matter what is happening in our world, no matter what will happen, God is in complete control. Daniel walked away from this time of prayer and knew that for sure. And just like Daniel, we have to live with the tension of the already and the not yet. Just like Daniel, we too can look around us and see the landscape of history and see the landscape of our world and see the promises of God that have already been fulfilled, how God has proven himself time and time again, and we rely on God's past faithfulness to us and all of his sovereign workings to have confidence for the future that he will continue to deliver on what he has promised. But we have to live in the already and the not yet. So I say this simply to end. So Christian, when you look out into the world and you see things happening that are disheartening, don't panic. But remind yourself that this divine clock is ticking. It's moving toward a certain end when the anointed one will reemerge and wipe away evil forever. And so don't panic. But pray, pray the promises of God, knowing that he hears us and he's faithful to his promises. Let's do that now. Yeah, Lord God, we are blown away at the opportunity to just now, right now, no, just like springboard from scripture and to cry out to you and know that you hear us. And Father, we're living in a time right now, especially like this week that we're in, that we're moving toward uh, polling day and, and voting day and all of that, where we're tempted to think that that's where our hope lies. Like we just gotta get the right rulers in place and this world's gonna be perfect and better. And that's not true. We know that we're gonna live in a world that is totally broken till you come back and make it fully whole. That you remove all evil from outside of us and from within us 
You place yourself at the center. You wipe away every tear from our eyes. Grief, cry, and pain will exist no more. And you will sit enthroned, and we will see you. And we will celebrate you forever and ever. And we will know on that day that you are the one that orchestrated all things to bring that about, to bring us into that place and into that, that setting. And that none of it did we deserve, and none of it was of our own doing. And so, Jesus, today, we fix our eyes on you. We do not grow weary. We continue to let goodness define our lives, Lord, and ask that you would work in us powerfully no matter what comes our way. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.